The Nowhere Fast podcast is brought to you in part by Sepp's Pizza. In addition to their regular menu, they are currently running a lunch special. Any two individual slices for $12, Tuesday through Friday, 11.30 until 2 p.m. Pick up only. Please visit sepspizza.com to place an order, or for any other information you might need. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the episode, and enjoy the pie. Thank you so much for being here. I know we're trying to to get this done for a while, and I'm I'm sure you're a lot busier than I am, but I'm glad we finally found a moment to to get this done. I I'm super excited to talk to you, and it's funny because I actually I barely know what I want to talk to you about. The in like full transparency, when I found you through your show the history of punk i made a note that i i would love to talk to you and Brittany about the show so i had you on a list of of potential people i would love to interview so i was showing my girlfriend the list and she was like oh i've actually i've heard of rylan but she really she knew of you in academia like completely outside of your show so when she was telling me a bit about what what she's heard of you doing at school that kind of became the like took precedent in my interest then now that i've followed you and i'm i'm lucky enough to be be in the close friend circle i see all your non-alcoholics and all your harm reduction posts so you just interest me on multiple levels and I just kind of selfishly want to have you on to literally just chat. Like I, I don't really know exactly what I want to ask and what we'll end up talking about, but I would like to talk about all of it or none of it. Just whatever, whatever you want to talk about, let's talk about. Love it. That sounds great. I'm so happy to be here and getting the chance to chat with you. Can I ask about maybe the non-alcoholic beers first? Like, hopefully you don't mind me asking. Did you, like, were you a drinker that quit drinking and then developed an interest in these beers? Or were you just into them as a sober person all along? I, I, I was, yeah, I was a drinker. I, as... I especially loved having some beers with friends at the pub or at concerts in the park. (laughs) And I was thinking one day, I was talking to my friend Aaron, actually, and we were having a chat about places we like to go. And I I realized that all these places now had near beers. And I could keep the social aspect involved with, with drinking, but lose the alcohol. So... I decided to give it a go just over nine months ago and and see what it was like. And it's been great. I mean, doing the the the, the Ryland, Ryland reviews near beers uh, on my Instagram stories has been a fun and creative way 
of, of sharing stories of like where you can find near beers, what they're like, and that you can keep that social aspect. And maybe if you're trying to quit drinking or drink a little less and, and just have fun with it. So, so yeah, I thought it'd be a, a fun and creative spin on, on trying near beers and yeah, it's, it's been great. I, I, I haven't missed drinking at all from, from the second I stopped and I was wondering if I would like bring it back in a little bit, uh, you know, switch a near beer with a, with an alcoholic beer, but I think I'm just going to stay the course on this for a while. It's, I've been really enjoying it. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, hey, thank you for the post because I'm in almost the exact same boat as you. I, uh, gone on and off like drinking for a while and, I also, it was the social aspect of it that really kind of kept me doing it. Like, I, I liked the idea of going out for, like, one or two drinks with friends and just, like, the talks and all the conversations and everyone showing each other, like, videos and notes on their phone. I, I like that. But I also any previous times I had stopped, I hadn't tried any of these near beers. I kind of, I'm a little stubborn sometimes. So basically my thought was if I'm gonna abstain from alcohol for many benefits, then near beers kind of defeat the purpose. It's like the same, same ish, like calories, same ish price. Like it just, I was like, I'll, I'll just drink water if I'm not going to drink. But then it made like, especially at the beginning, going to parties and bars and stuff, it was a little like less enjoyable. But then a friend of mine kind of steered me in the way of some delicious non-alcoholic beers and it completely changed it for me. And now... I can have one of those. I can go out. I've actually probably been going to the bar almost more having new beers than I was having regular beers. And I, like you, haven't missed it for one second now that I was able to like swap in every aspect except the alcohol. And I've definitely made notes of a lot of the ones you've posted and sought them out or they're on my list of things to seek out. So I, I really, I wanted to know the backstory, but I also wanted to thank you for that little like boost of Intel. Someone who's, I've only been this time a few months. So you're a few months ahead of me and I appreciate you passing down the knowledge to someone like me who, who needs it a bit more. What, what's your favorite? favorite one so far i think my favorites there's there's a local there's a local pale ale from here the syc brewing does a pale ale that's really good and then there's a whole line of of uh non-alcoholic beers from i think it's from montreal like sans alcohol or sans yeah sans alcohol beer those are so good i i honestly like i Spoiler, almost well, all my reviews are, are going to be positive spins on the beers. Even Bud Zero tastes like nothing, <laughs> but I'll still spin it in a positive way. 
But the one beer I had to be like, yeah, I don't like this one was the the Sands Sands Alcohol IPA because it tastes exactly like an IPA. It's really hoppy. And I don't like IPAs. So they nailed it. It's it's the perfect IPA. And so I don't like it much. That that's funny because I actually I love IPAs. And I was gonna say that Montreal brand and actually the SYC are probably two of the better ones that I've tried so far. So we really relate on those. And then I am an IPA guy, so after this I I may hunt down that IPA and give it a try. I think I've had a few of the other ones, but not that one. So thanks again. I'll I'll let you know what I think. That it's funny that that you mentioned always trying to put a positive spin on the reviews. That's another thing I I notice. And I mean we we met once like I I don't know know you but what I've seen from I guess the internet is is that you are quite positive and you have a way of it seems like everything you do kind of has a community behind it that you're I I can't tell if you're just nurturing the community or if you're bringing the community but you you really seem to like have a a positive like friendly aura about everything you do and I see people like really resonating with that have you like did you grow up that community oriented or is this something you like learned as you got older or like are you not even aware of of the kind of like community behind a lot of your causes and am I like telling you something you don't already know I do know you are spot on. I I think my positivity comes from the communities that I'm in, the reciprocal relationships that I have and because of the benefits of the communities I participate in, I, that's that's it. That's where the the positivity comes from, I think. And it it's always been that way. We're like all growing up and into adulthood and now adulthood. Yes. I was lucky enough to I was a swimmer growing up and had a lot of close friends that uh, a very training intensive sport so the folks that I was swimming with on my team I would see in the morning before school I would see them after school I would see them on weekends and I was lucky enough to be surrounded by just wonderful nice peers and and growing up with them and the coaches that i had relationships with like all these positive relationships on myriad levels the officials the volunteers that you know we'd work bingos together uh, it was just incredibly positive for me and a really enriching nurturing environment um and then also just my peer group with with uh, uh i grew up just outside of red deer and and friends around uh, where i lived and went to school with i've just been very very lucky and that has continued uh since i i moved to edmonton to start my undergrad uh, as i've been also lucky enough to travel to different places in the world i've been able to connect with communities of like-minded people and it's just really enriched my life and hopefully i've uh, enriched others too yeah no like it, like i was saying it seems 
for the little glimpse into things that I've got, it, it definitely seems like you are able to. I'm wondering if if some of your interests and just the way you are, are you like an outlier in swim culture a bit? Like having a like a punk radio show and all the other things you do is that is that out of the norm for maybe your average swimmer? Maybe the average swimmer, but uh, funny enough, when I when I moved up here for my undergrad and I, I was swimming at the University of Alberta, uh, I was I was co-captain with another team member named Mike Vandenham. And I think the reason why one of the reasons why we connected as friends so quickly is because he was the guy on the team with a mohawk and and uh, and the the punk rock leather jacket. And it turns out he had been uh, in a bunch of like bands that played hall shows around Edmonton. And we just actually went to a reunion show for for the band Death by Dawn uh, for Mike's birthday, and and we're able to reflect on like the 25 years of these punk bands playing together in Edmonton. So um, there's been yeah there's been layers of these intersections with people. So we had swimming in common, but then we also had that punk rock attitude in common too. That's super cool. It's like I. I kind of assumed you were almost like a one of one in, in swimming to have these other extracurricular activities, but then to hear that you met someone on the exact same page in that sport, I I really like the idea of there being two of you now, kind of like the the bad boys of swimming in a way. Although I guess you guys weren't bad, but the the outliers, let's say. So when I I also know you're quite passionate about like harm reduction, helplessness, things of that nature. When when did you get involved with that stuff, or is that again just something you kind of like grew up having compassion for? I think I think and I hope the compassion was there, and it's certainly it's it's how. I developed even more relationships through swimming as an athlete, but I also became a coach too at a very young age. I think I started coaching when I was 14 or 15. The The Special Olympics team trained after me uh, on Wednesdays and the team needed someone to teach some of the more elite uh, swimmers on the team uh, some, some nuances of butterfly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I started volunteering with Special Olympics uh, we had a a swimmer win the Special Olympics in Ireland in 2003, and so so I I think my involvement in swimming again and the benefits that it can bring people and and all these positive experiences that come out of it has been ingrained in me uh, from a young age and uh, I, you know at a formative age too, and so whether you know whether it's personal achievement or friendship or or whatever the positives that are coming out of it that matter to people i think it's it's a way it can be used as a tool for that and so when i finished my master's degree in history which was focused on community development through music scenes specifically i looked at the history of the seattle music scene uh through the 1950s and and kids like Jimi Hendrix who grew up there and benefited from the music community and Quincy Jones and and Ray Charles was discovered 
by uh, <laughs> was discovered and, and went to Los Angeles after a show at a venue called the Rocking Chair in Seattle uh, uh, through the garage rock scene in Seattle to the grunge scene and the punk explosion or that sort of yeah the, well it was it was uh the grunge explosion i guess but from the punk community bands like nirvana and and so i took some of the things i learned about community development and the history of the seattle music scene and my own coaching experience and, and benefits from sport and tried to put them to use in city center edmonton uh, when i finished my masters i i was lucky enough to get a job facilitate like creating and facilitating sustaining physical health and mental wellness programs out of two harm reduction uh social agencies in city center edmonton so these programs uh, uh were were programs that that houseless edmontonians participated in uh, or i i use the term city center residents people that belong in city center edmonton whether they're they're houseless or precariously housed, sleeping rough, whatever the case may be, it's their home and they belong there. And so, with the myriad interests of people that uh, that reside in the city center, but might might not have the the typical access to uh, you know playing sports that they're interested in, creative pursuits, music, art, uh, or maybe they already do all these things. And, and just uh, providing another avenue for those things to be developed more or to just just happen more. Uh, so I yeah, so that that's that was kind of my my jump into city center Edmonton was was helping out with these programs uh, in about 2012. That's absolutely incredible. Like I like I was telling you when when we were getting started, I was super intro I didn't know where this was gonna go like i really just wanted to sit down and, and chat with someone that i'm so curious about but these these answers are, are even even more it's like an onion like there's more layers it's more interesting the deeper we get into this like that's the, very incredible that you were a able to do that but then b like also pull all those like not random but obscure inspirations and kind of like meld them all together into like what you're doing that that's very cool i've never never talked to i've never really met someone with that like precise of a mission and and inspiration for it said mission that's very cool you mentioned earlier like growing up just outside red deer so it was like houselessness and all that like was that more of a rarefied thing for you to be exposed to like growing up yes uh, the visibility was not um in in red deer in particular uh there was a few visibly houseless people in the city center uh, looking back uh in rural uh alberta i i grew up just outside of red deer in between red deer and black falls uh, it, it, yeah, there was no real visibility of it. And, and even when I came to Edmonton, uh, the, the visibility of, of houselessness was, was not, uh, maybe at the, to the extent that it is today. So like when you moved here, was that the first time that you had really 
really seen this type of thing like firsthand? It really wasn't until I started working downtown. And I mean, I remember the day I had my job interview in, tw in 2012. I finished my master's and I, I had an interview at one of these harm reduction agencies. And I remember taking the LRT and I'm excited, right? Like I might get a job. And I get off the LRT, I, I walk outside on Jasper Avenue. I've got a big grin on my face. And there's all these, these guys that I think they were confusing Edmonton with Wall Street. And you know, they're, they're in their suits and they're walking around looking very seriously and I'm smiling and they just look away. And that that does not stop me from keeping my smile on as I walk closer towards the harm reduction agency. And all of a sudden, there's just this transition from these these suit bros to just people hanging out on the sidewalk, city center residents. They're the ones that are saying hello. They're greeting me. They're smiling back. And I immediately just had a connection with folks. And I was like, this is great. And and. Uh, yeah, so I still I remember that kind of shift from even being in Edmonton for a long time and and then yeah, coming for that job interview and and getting the job lucky enough and then just being able to continue to nurture those those relationships with people ever since and I just feel so lucky that I've been able to do that. I I agree with that. Like Sarah and I will go out we'll go on walks and you know we'll give her get some exercise for the dog but also get excuse for me to just take my random photos and it's always like the people the kind of like less fortunate you know maybe houseless the inner city people they're always the ones who like talk to us and they're they're the nicest like welcoming people you know they ask about my camera they like, you know, they really interact with us. But yeah, it's almost the exact same. We'll walk down Jasper and at the start of it, it's all guys in suits with their Starbucks. They like wouldn't look at anyone else unless they were maybe in a suit as well. Then it transitions to a different like neighborhood scape. And that's when the people actually start talking and interacting with you. It, it's very, very interesting how that all works i feel like you know there maybe could be something learned from all these like office people from the people they look down on but unfortunately might not go that way when you when you moved here like you moved for school so were you mainly kind of around the university like is that why you weren't as exposed to the inner city stuff until you actually went into the inner city I think so. I think so. I, I I called it the university bubble, and and you could just stay in this bubble. I I mean I you know venture out to White Avenue or maybe to Jasper Ave sometimes, but it was definitely that area was kind of the core the community that I was in, and and now with the displacement and dispossession of city center residents from downtown, you're seeing more houselessness in other areas of the city including the university and it's been really uh, dis uh, it's been dismaying uh, i've been dismayed by the reaction of the community to largely put up more walls increase surveillance increase policing increase security lock the doors and 
and like you said, when you're, you know, you're walking around and, and you use the word neighborhood, it's uh, the, the way that yeah, neighbors are treated in, in such a punitive um, way has been, yeah, it's been disheartening and dismaying. And I really hope that that, that changes. If you were to recommend, you know, like what can people do to get closer to a solution to this problem? Like if you if were going to impart like one thing that anyone listening might be able to go factor into their day just to help improve all this, is is there like one or two little things that people could could start implementing to maybe help out with all this or is it? a bigger problem that needs more attention than just like day-to-day things that normal citizens could do? Well, I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's structural, but I think like you say, day-to-day, I think an answer is in everyday practices in people's everyday behavior, outlook and interactions. Uh, This might be a long answer (laughs) to your question, but the reason why I think that is, is because of what I've seen uh, when I worked downtown full-time, uh, the research that I did uh, in my undergrad in history and my master's in history, and now as a uh, finishing off my PhD in sociology, uh, and the work, that, the work that I've been doing downtown as a researcher, uh, because my current research is focused on the everyday practices in in the immediacy of what's happening with all of these structural challenges that people are going through. I mean, city center residents in in city center Edmonton downtown, they're they're facing the the risks of harm from from climate change, from from inter- inclement weather. Right now, as as winter's starting to get colder, there's there's violence, there's policing, there's uh, drug poisonings, and of course the housing and encampment evictions and disease. And so, with the myriad uh, difficulties and risk of harm that people are experiencing all the time, uh, I I do I think about your question a lot, and and the reason why I think one of the answers is in these everyday practices is is because of the the care that people show themselves and others and i've seen the benefits of that firsthand and i think we all can and i think that's something that matters to everyone wherever they are and i i was reading the other day actually um about the chernobyl catastrophe and when the the dangers of of what was happening at chernobyl in ukraine was was content it was well it was a a global catastrophe but it could have been a lot worse without a few of the the workers that were there Uh, they they had to uh, it was it was considered a you know a, a a responsibility a duty that they probably wouldn't come back from was something like draining the water out of the reactors or or something was going to happen that was going to exacerbate the catastrophe. And so that was the day where they, they had to act. And even at the, at the risk of themselves and they did and, and they made it through and they, they, they essentially saved the world. Um, uh, 
I think that in city center Edmonton, the care that people show each other every day and the immediacy of what's happening with all these myriad crises intersecting is, is people are saving the world every day and their everyday actions and their everyday practices, um, being there for themselves and others with, with care and kindness. Even I, I, my friend taught me a word the other day, cause it's like the opposite of competitiveness and just getting joy from seeing the joy of others, even though it might not benefit you personally, uh, the word it's, it's compersion. And I think that the answer to helping others or just the answer to what's going on with all these structural issues is that wherever you are, the relationships that you have, if you're acting with kindness, care, and compersion, uh, we are, yeah, we are, uh, we're going to be able to get through these these systemic issues and these challenges that we're facing every day together. Incredible question. That's an incredible answer. Well, I thought I was asking kind of a just a, a dumb like filler question. I didn't know you were gonna have like an eloquent response to that. So thank you for turning my subpar question into a great sentiment. That's uh I mean, that's, I, I had Will, Will on uh, last episode, or two episodes ago, I guess, by the time this comes out. But he, he was saying, I asked him the same thing, just because I know it's kind of a, maybe not the best question, but it's good to have someone like you or him answer, because you guys are in the thick of it. Like, you, you can provide a better answer than bureaucratic people who aren't really involved in the process. And he was saying just the way the language you use with these people or how you treat these people or even like making eye contact with them. It can be that easy, you know, that's something anyone really can implement, even if they have the busiest day, right? It's just talk to these people a bit, like humanize them more and treat them like people because they're they clearly are just the same as us. They're just in a bit of a different circumstance. So I think between what you've advised and what he's advised, hopefully people listening think about this a bit more and then just implement these like easy ideas. I mean, hopefully people take it further and get really involved, but if they just want to take a couple of minutes out of their day to make a difference, they can start with what you're saying and what, what he was saying. I think so. Uh, there's there's so much stigma around uh, the the houseless community, city center residents uh, in in Edmonton. It's a worldwide issue as well, and in the mediated framing or like in the the mainstream media stories that come out are often the uh, yeah the stories that will uh, create feelings of unsafety or 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 fear. And I think. At times we can get glimpses of the unique stories of city center residents of of people that you know because everybody has so much to offer and is so unique and so special that and we get glimpses of it uh you know when when you learn people's stories that happen to be houseless at a particular time i remember in in edmonton uh there there was a someone uh put a youtube video up of a city center resident named Ryan Arcand, who who was an incredible piano player. And because this person had their phone, 
they filmed Ryan playing the piano and then put it out on YouTube, people got a glimpse of, of Ryan in maybe a different light from what's in the mediated framing or what people might happen to see at other times. And when you can see glimpses like that of Ryan playing the piano or, or cause honestly, everyone like, you know, downtown or anywhere in the world, everyone has these special things to offer. They might be able to, you know, incredible piano players, uh, but they might be interested in, in sports or, or art or just be, be a joker and, and it just make, make people feel good when they're around them. Whatever these, these talents are, these unique abilities, I think just getting to uh, learn about people more really, really gets through the stigma and you get to see more of the story. And I think learning that and experiencing that is a, is a pretty special thing. And, and I hope more people can, can do that. Was, was this person that like released uh, this thing on YouTube where they like, was it seen as a positive thing or did people think they were kind of like, you know, putting something that shouldn't be on the internet? on the internet well there there's many... sorry go ahead wesley no i sorry i was i was just wondering if it was for their like personal gain or if they were just actually trying to like tell this person's story there's certainly a trend of of people doing things like that that is out of self-interest uh, where, especially in in situations where where houseless Edmontonians are are in precarious positions or or incidents that could actually like stigmatize people further, or they're just filming or taking pictures without people's permission. This was a was not the case. Uh, Ryan was in this particular instance. Ryan was playing uh, the piano, and then the person filmed it. Put it online i think there was like because it had so many views uh there was like it, you know youtube you can eventually like start making money off of it but as, as far as i know the the person that that recorded like was able to track ryan down and and give him the money it was it was something like that it was but even though yes even though this was a positive example the there needs to be that like understanding of, of of consent and and people being okay with being filmed or it being shared all those sorts of things and because people even with the best of intentions will do this and even if it's supposed to be a feel-good story it can have negative repercussions for people and yeah. needs to be permission certainly yeah no that the kind of a random question to throw in there i just wondered because i i've seen it like that's a quite a fickle you know it can take a, a wrong turn so quickly like even with good intentions like you were saying so i was just curious if the person did it for the right reasons but i mean that that's amazing they were able to find him and pass on that whatever monetization came from that that's I mean, pretty rare that you'd pass that on. So that that person, very commendable, and that's cool. Do you know is the video still up? I I haven't heard of this, but I would love to to see it. As far as I know, it is. And yeah, I knew Ryan, and uh, I I knew that yeah he uh, 
I think he was pretty chuffed, pretty happy uh, with the video. He's he's since passed away, but the the video, as far as I know, is still still online. Cool. I'll uh, yeah, I'll I'll look for it. And if I can find it, maybe I'll link it in the show notes because that would be interesting for the people to be able to see that as well. Um, if I if I'm getting this right. I think you said it was 2012 that you were hired. So it's been over a decade that you've been in all this. And I know when we met uh, a couple weeks ago, you were completely swamped with, with school stuff. And I know that either is, is done or coming to an end, right? So what what's next for you in, in the harm reduction and houseless space? So I'm hoping I'll be done soon. Yeah, I've been uh, working uh, to finish my dissertation, which is which is focused on uh, the effects of gentrification in city center Edmonton and displacement of houseless community members, uh, specifically around an encampment of about 400 people at the beginning of COVID uh, called Pekawaywin by the baseball stadium. Oh, yeah. So I'm finishing that up, um, and then the plan is to continue to to well continue to continue relationships downtown, and and if that uh, continues in a research capacity, uh, an activist capacity, wh- whatever the case may be, I mean it's it's a community based sort of thing. So we'll see we'll see what that looks like. Uh, and yeah, so I will, I will continue to uh, sustain relationships with people in, in myriad ways, I hope. And so, and then hopefully some of the, the research work that I've been doing can, can be used in meaningful and positive ways uh, with what's continuing to happen in city center Edmonton and, and other places as well. So uh, I guess I wasn't clear on this. You're not employed by these people anymore like anything you do harm reduction or houselessness is volunteer while you're in school right like it's not a a job anymore or a paid job so the uh when i returned to school uh, i i moved from history to kinesiology uh, because of what the the effects on the ground from the opening of Rogers Place uh, was doing to the existing residents of the area, a lot of negative consequences uh, due to gentrification and policing and, and ongoing settler colonialism, racial capitalism. So in discussions with city center residents that I knew uh, that had concerns of the uncertainty of what was happening around the opening of Rogers Place, I decided to go back to school because I felt it was a, it was a place where I could be more effective uh, because when you're working for nonprofits, the nonprofit system or the nonprofit industrial complex is by design kept at arm's length from the state or from the government uh, as a way to keep it in like a hyper competitive funding structure where all these nonprofits are competing against each other uh, for a limited amount of funding and that funding is predicated on not speaking out politically and ensuring that you you just fall in line with with things that 
that could otherwise disrupt your funding and having funding being cut to uh, crucial programs that support people. So I felt that uh, my role as a worker would uh, potentially not just impede the work that I was trying to do, but have negative repercussions for the nonprofits that I worked for. And so I decided to return to the academy um, after talking to city center residents about the potential of a, it being a place where I could help affect uh, changes. And so returned to school to start doing that work. Um, I continued in my role with the nonprofits for a while as well, because with the nonprofit system, there's, there's not a lot of continuity or institutional memory for programs. Even the program I ran was a, was a pilot program that was funded year to year at best. And so for half the year, I know I had funding for my program. Then the other half of the year, we would kind of run on fumes until we were able to patch together other sources of funding to keep it going. Uh, these workers are not paid well. That's another by design of the nonprofit system. You're precariously employed. Uh, there's there's always there's stories coming out in the media that are often about a, a new program that's doing good work, but that the funding is ending. And these are never ending funding cycles that just keep going. And so uh, the the precarity of both the workers and the nonprofit system it's it's yeah it's by design kept it at arm's length from the state uh, to continue on this kind of catastrophe of the status quo which we see every year as we know in Edmonton winter always comes back but it's almost like it's a surprise uh, for for the funders to then provide routine emergency funding every winter uh, and what are we going to do now that it's cold out again and and people are experiencing houselessness uh, it's almost, yeah, like a surprise every time it happens. But that, again, is by design and and just happens every year. And in that immediacy, everybody's just trying to react to what's happening and trying to look at the bigger picture is quite difficult because you don't even have time to process what you've just experienced before moving on to the next challenge or crisis. And with the intersecting crises that I mentioned before, uh, they've just been exacerbated by the lack of supports uh, during COVID-19, uh, the lack of a safe supply amidst the, the opioid, uh, the drug poisoning crisis, um, the withdrawal of supports for safer consumption sites, uh, the ongoing um, yeah, encampment evictions by police and, and housing evictions, the, the eviction of harm reduction centers from the area which most recently happened at the end of September. Uh, so the the community is dispersed. The 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 even the agencies that are supposed to be doing the support work are dispersed. And so it's uh it's yeah it's a challenging system, uh, but again that's by design and it's all to uh, uh, kind of keep the status quo going uh, for the for the interests that really benefit from ongoing settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Uh, the, the big player, of course, in Edmonton, um, being the, the state capital formation between the Cates Group, owner of the Edmonton Oilers, and, and the uh, city of Edmonton, and other layers of the settler state, not just the municipal government, but the provincial government under the UCP, 
and then the federal government as well. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, to answer your question, I am not working uh, within the nonprofit system currently. <laughs> I am, I am, yeah, doing my uh, work downtown on a on a volunteer mutual care basis, and then finishing up school. That I mean, thanks for explaining that. That gives me a little more context. When what you were referencing, we lost something at the end of September. Was that the uh, the, the Boyle building? Yes, uh, Boyle Street Community Services was evicted from its building by its uh, by by its landlord, the Cates Group, on September thirtieth. So okay, I I wanted to ask Will this. As well, because he was mentioning the the kind of absurdity of the, of the Oilers having so much pull in all this. Am I not a, like to be a like compassionate Edmontonian? Do I have to like boycott the Oilers because their group is responsible for this, or are the players separate from the Cates group? Like. Am, but you, I'm asking you personally, am I allowed to be an Oilers fan or is that like irresponsible of me? I think that, you know, if there's things in life that you get joy out of, then, then you should enjoy them. Um, but with the, the understanding of how like the, the bigger picture and I mean the, the players uh, within the National Hockey League are exploited themselves. Their bodies are used for... Uh, and their labor, uh, their surplus, like they're used as commodities to make owners, the billionaires, even more money, right? So when they're getting CTE and brain injuries and their bodies don't work anymore, uh, that's that's done for a spectacle of of capital accumulation for billionaires. And so they're they they you know they they might be in in better positions financially than some other workers, but there's there's a precarity to to their role as well, I think. Um, so that's something to stay mindful of, especially with the violence on the ice that is so glorified. Right. But as we know from from all the research that's coming out on on brain trauma, uh, that every time somebody's getting punched in the face and the crowd's cheering, that's could be doing and probably like, it's, it's doing irrevocable damage to those people. And and we we and in not just um, like gridiron football, but ice hockey, rugby, all these contact sports are 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 damaging people uh, for the rest of their lives. Uh, so on the on the player level, um, and then yeah, but uh, I mean, again, like hockey, ice hockey is so ingrained into the cultural identity of our city that it's been exploited by billionaires um, in ways that have meant that they've been able to do uh, the, 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 the transformation of land in city center Edmonton uh, into this, this called the ice district. Uh, it's, it's, it's a gentrification process to, to, to make a lot of, to change the value of land, to, to make more money. It's like a, another real estate uh play and and so the others were used as leverage for that by the owner and to again glean countless concessions from the city of Edmonton uh the city of Edmonton debt financed 613.7 million dollars so they took out a loan 
uh, to build what became Rogers Place, while the Cates Group get every cent that's generated from Rogers Place uh, for 35 years, until it's time to build an it's to, until it's time to build uh, the <laughs> the private uh, sport franchise a new a new arena. So so the public is put on, and we're seeing this in Calgary now as well, of course. Uh, but but it's part of a larger larger systemic issue of of the way that these owners are able to glean so many concessions from the public that when we when we aren't supporting and caring for for people but always coming up with the money that the billionaires need that's uh i mean not the situation is not incredible just the answer like the fact that you could explain it like that i i really regretted not being able to ask will if it was like inappropriate to actually be an Oilers fan knowing all this stuff is is happening and uh so I'm I'm glad I I remembered to ask you that really is like I mean I barely even thought about it that way I'm sure so many people listening have never really thought about it in that way but it it really really shed some light on it and it's like you know behind the scenes behind everyone like celebrating the the rare wins that we get there's all this like malice happening in the back so it, it actually incredible that you and people like you can kind of put it that way and maybe like make people see the the reality of the the situation i had never heard that like 613 that's insanity that yeah brutal well even even getting that information has been quite difficult uh because the 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 spin especially in the mediated framing by the boosters of the cates group uh within the media and within like the political structure of the city it's it obscures what's actually happening and it's so easy to dismiss and deflect criticism uh, for all the boosting that the supporters do, uh, the the people that critique or are critical are called knockers, are are just like uh, dismissed as being like, oh, you just you know you don't want people to be happy, you don't want Edmonton to be world class. Of course, I want to be Edmonton to be world class, but in meaningful ways of people caring for each other and supporting each other in a community that is full of compassion and kindness rather than extractive and extractional and violent. Uh, so that obscuring has made it difficult to do since even before the arena opened, since the arena agreement was signed before between the city of Edmonton and the Cates Group in 2013, and then ground broke on the arena in 2014, and then it opened in September 2016. Uh, I've been doing research work with others uh, on the ground around the arena ever since. Um, so I've seen firsthand, uh, witnessed and observed and participated in in what's happened ever since. So it takes that kind of, I guess, commitment to being there and to doing the work to even try and unravel sort of these things. And while we've we've released some some academic articles on our findings and our evidence, I've written a comic book uh, with local punk rock illustrator Spider Yardley Jones about the eviction of 
a place called the McDonald Lofts, which was a building adjacent to to Rogers Place that that uh, it was it was the like the apartment building where the most Ill, people ill served by the housing industry in Edmonton resided. And when the arena opened, the Cates Group bought the McDonald Lofts and evicted all of its residents. And it has been empty ever since. Uh, so I wrote a, a fictionalized version of that eviction and the people's lives and stories that I knew who lived there to try and just tell the story and maybe add an, again, like you mentioned, an onion, the onion, add another layer of what's actually happening. I wonder actually if you're doing all this, um, I don't even know what the word would be like un unsavory research, let's say like you're trying to speak for the people maybe and the Oilers group is just trying to make money so like are they really like do you have like maybe not literally but is there a target on your back because of exposing the numbers and stuff like would they kind of know who you are and really not like what you're prophesizing I mean I don't I don't think so because it certainly hasn't impeded them from getting what they want <laughs> uh, because they have such a, a hold on the political opportunity structure in the city and, and the, uh, the, the, I mean, there were, there were challenges that, that they have ultimately overcome. I mean, uh, unlike the McDonald lofts that was bought by the Cates group and everyone was evicted, um, the the building uh, next to it, Boyle Street Community Services drop-in, uh, the Cates Group couldn't buy it right away because in 2013, in secret, Boyle Street bought its building without uh, in a sale that they were able to get through before anyone found out about it. Uh, there was only a few. There was a handful of people at Boyle Street that even knew the deal was happening, and it was announced on my birthday, so it was uh, quite the wonderful birthday present. But, nice. but then once, because, uh, and, uh, we, we published some, some academic stuff about this, but at the time, uh, when the arena deal was going through, there were questions around like what was going to happen to places like Boyle street and the McDonald lofts, uh, when the arena opened and a very high up local politician said at the time, oh, well, don't worry, they'll just disappear. Uh, which has been the story of of Edmonton since it was settled in the 1870s is, you know, just um, pushing out, displacing, dispossessing indigenous peoples and and pushing out their visibility onto reserves or or into residential schools uh, and otherwise since then in the the local the the new local iteration of ongoing settler colonialism happens through things like gentrification now and policing and displacement. And so at the time, the politician was just able to dismiss it and be like, Oh, don't worry about them, they'll disappear. So again, something like a process that's been ongoing since the 1870s. Um, but with Boyle Street buying its building, that wasn't able to happen as quickly. And so it took 10 years for that to happen. So Boyle Street bought its building, the hope was that it, the building could be redeveloped into a center that that was more aligned with with how gentrification was transforming the area, 
whether that meant that city center residents would still use the building in the way they do, or if it would be used as more of a social enterprise, a business run by a nonprofit uh, that catered to arena goers while the center moved to another place. But after the sale, after Boyle Street owned its building, to when the Cates Group finally did take ownership over it, every development idea or, or, or scheme that, that Boyle Street came up with was rejected by the different levels of government or by local funders. And it wasn't until the Cates Group was getting what it, it wanted that a deal went through. And so now the, the eviction of Boyle Street has happened their new building is not ready yet. And so now everything is dispersed all, all over the city. And there's there's no drop-in that has the capacities that Boyle Street did open in the city center right now. And we saw after the eviction on September 30th, uh, the uh, ni 19 deaths within a week or so of city center residents around that area. Uh, so just seeing the continued exacerbation and heightened of the harms and the risk of harms that city center residents experience based on this ongoing gentrification process in the city. Uh, so it sort of ends again, answer your question a little bit more concisely. I don't, I don't think the case group needs to worry about me because they're, whether it happens right away or eventually everything is going according to plan because the system is designed for it to, and to, ultimately benefit uh the the state capital formation or the the this this big this giant leviathan business and the state that they're the government that falls in line to make sure it gets what it wants and we see this even with the way the area is policed ever since is uh the new Boyle building is is that the one kind of kitty corner into like Vic High School? When it opens, yes, it'll be it'll be closer. It's just uh, two blocks up from the existing building or the former building. Um, but again, with doing the we call it ethnography, but basically what I did with a research team for the first two years after the arena opened was. I walked around during every Oilers home game to see the way the landscape changed and what happened around the arena during games. And the, aside from the parking lots and, and people parking kind of east of Ice District and northeast of Ice District, you don't, you get people coming and going, but even moving the, the building a couple blocks northeast is, uh, is pushing it outside of what the, 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 I guess the revenue generating area uh, necessitates. So it doesn't seem like a far move, but it further concentrates the city center community into an even smaller area, uh, which exacerbates challenges for, for everyone. But, and it's been quite contentious and quite divisive in the community. Uh, so instead of the community being in solidarity uh, with each other, the, the this movement has able the the case group has been able to fracture the community and and cause infighting. Uh, well, well, they again just get to roll through, if that makes sense. Do, do you think that that's a plan of theirs, like to 
distract from what's actually happening just to pit pit the community against each other? I don't even know if it's it needs to be a conscious thing uh, because the structure is so designed for these opportunities for the Cates group right. uh, to just be able to capitalize on. And and so with this, yeah, municipal government, uh, our provincial government currently, and the the way that the Cates group can just capitalize on these things, it's it's even. I mean, they're like after well, during the construction of the arena, uh, while Boyle Street was still in its uh, nearby building, just the construction, uh, they they the the construction broke a bunch of like sewer lines, and so there was a flood of Boy of Boyle Street. We had programs like a pet food bank, the the mental health department, the the youth uh, area of the building. Everything was flooded. Uh, so there was like a temporary displacement of the community happening just by the design of just these processes happening. Uh, it just, it, it has uh, un, maybe unforeseen, but it has consequences for the community just by it's the very fact that it's been prioritized over existing residents. So whether I can't speak to whether they yeah do it on purpose or not, but it certainly is a system that just is made to benefit them and, and that's been the case since, like I said, the 1870s and and earlier businessmen like Frank Oliver were able to capitalize on it. That's uh, they're really, I mean, bad enough initially, but then all of this like compounding, like extra floods and not deals not going through because of like clearly strong arming behind the scenes. That's uh. I mean, it just makes it makes it even worse. It's really heartbreaking. Where earlier you you mentioned that Boyle was able to buy the building, was that preemptive? Like, did they know like that it was the impending uh, buying of the building was coming, and they wanted to get ahead of it? Was that just a really nice coincidence for once? Oh no, they they knew what was happening and and made the decision to buy it certainly so it was it was preemptive and then how did that work actually like they just held off selling for as long as they couldn't eventually like they just couldn't say no anymore or like what what how did it stay off the purchase for a decade but then still end up happening as, as far as i know essentially like what you've said the the efforts were made to redevelop the building or move to a more suitable location, use owning the building as leverage for that to happen rather than just being immediately pushed out. But the at every turn, yeah, these ideas were, were turned down. And the amount of resources that it took from that nonprofit to develop these development schemes, to have these ideas and to put them forward uh, took away a lot of the, the the resources and time and labor of the of the nonprofits workers because they were focused on that. There was other work that they weren't doing, and that's another unforeseen aspect of these these developments. Is even the I mentioned like the six hundred thirteen point seven million dollar loan the city took out to build the arena for the Cates Group. Uh, then there's the the countless hours of city staff 
all the all the like people whose jobs are to ensure that these things go through and are successful. So we're looking at, at you know, like the actual public treasure that goes into these things is is a lot higher of a number if you were going to put it into a dollar value than six hundred and thirteen point seven million dollars. The which isn't like just think of that sentence, right? Being more than six hundred and thirteen million dollars is is quite astronomical. <laughs> like that is very very unnecessary. I mean, we just uh to boil it down to like the the most layman terms, we don't even win at hockey. This is all futile. Like they're they're toying with people's lives, and the Oilers haven't done anything good in like four decades. And it was it was never about that. I think. Well, the uh, the the old Coliseum was was still generating so much revenue. Uh, the from not just the the ice hockey games but it was one of the biggest concert markets in the continent and by moving to the new arena the cates group was able to siphon off more revenue streams have you seen the end of the film there will be blood uh i've definitely seen it but too long ago to pretend i know exactly what you're talking about but like Say what you were saying anyway, and someone will get it if I don't. Just, uh, just siphoning off, like the, the just taking as much as you can, and so the like because uh, the Coliseum, the the events, the concerts were run by Northlands, which was kind of like the big player in town before the Cates Group took over. But by moving to Rogers Place. All those revenue streams from not just ice hockey, but all these forms of uh, consumptive entertainment uh, were able to be streamlined into the Cates Group's coffers. So so they're making money off of everything and there's no competition. The Coliseum tried to stay open for a little while, but it wasn't tenable because of the the contracts and the the deals that that ended up going through to the, the Cates Group through the downtown arena agreement. So every yeah every kind of frontier of capitalism every stream of capital accumulation culminated in in uh, being concentrated in in the Cates Group so so it doesn't end it's it's become yeah not about like yeah again not, to answer your question it's never been about winning it's just been about winning all these different frontiers of capital and just siphoning them into to their coffers so they've yeah they've they've streamlined all of that by the arena opening whether the stanley cup comes back to edmonton is i mean someone has to win it every year right so it's not like it's just a one-time thing the, the stanley cup will eventually come back but it might still take a while. yeah you know i'm i mean i guess i'm not all for people making tons of money no matter how they make it but it's even more I just hate the fact that these people are really making a lot of money at the expense of like their own city. You know, they're throwing like pretty much everyone that isn't Daryl Gates under the bus for him to like grow to an astronomical level 
Well, everyone else is just held back. And I mean, some have it even worse than others, but it's really like people's complete livelihoods, like full neighborhoods, full generations of people are being like completely, basically eradicated for him to to prosper at whatever he is. What do you know? What did he do before the Oilers? Like, how did he get to that power? Well, it's generational wealth. Uh, his his father, as far as I know, was already a drug uh, uh, store owner. That then, he oh right, right, right. That he inherited. So generational wealth, and then capitalizing on that, leveraging it through, uh, yeah, leveraging that capital find the Oilers and then again using that to then just yeah get public the public resources to to build the arena um and then him being able to take all the revenue for the Cates group uh and then you see that then that that cap that money just then leaves leaves the city um Daryl Cates didn't have to use his own money to to build the arena but then bought the most expensive house in Los Angeles history so, uh, you, yeah, you just see the the capital moves outside of the place. It's 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 extracted. The resources are extracted from our home and taken somewhere. I mean, we we keep referencing the onion, but it's like, yeah, he's making money off you know the the downfall of everyone around him, and then to add to that, he's putting that money back into an economy that isn't ours. It's not even Canadian. Like it's not provincial. It's not Canadian. He's completely gone like somewhere else and spent all that money. That's right. That is I did I I knew he was bad for sure. I didn't know maybe I did know how bad. I just didn't know exactly like the preciseness of all these moves. So again, thank you for sharing hopefully like people see this a bit differently and start to think about these type of things i'm uh looking at the time here i know you have stuff to do with your day i uh like yeah i said i had no idea what we were going to talk about i it was still kind of all over the place at the beginning but that was absolutely incredible like i i learned a lot i did exactly what i set out to do just have a cool chat with someone I really admire and record it before we go though I know like a lot of that stuff was I mean necessary to talk about for sure but a bit a bit heavy I just want to leave on since you're such a positive guy I want to just talk about something nice and carefree for a bit are you uh are you a better bowler than Will he was telling me about his his scores and I know I see photos of you guys at Plaza together. What what's your best game? My best game is never as high as Will scores. Oh, like he's he's definitively better. Like he's not even close. I am not even close to Will. Will is an incredible bowler and a very uh, very modest when he talks about how good he is. I, that's hilarious because I don't know anything about it. I wanted to leave like the episode I did with him on a bit of a positive note. So I thought I'd ask him about it. 
He rattled off some numbers, didn't make it seem that important. Then after after we hopped off, I googled the scores and I realized like, oh, he's he's absolutely downplaying. Like these are good, really good scores. Like he's you know, maybe not the best bowler in the world, but he's up. He's above the average for sure. And that's hilarious that you would say that too, because yeah, after I looked into it, I realized these scores are a bit, a bit better than he seemed to be giving himself credit for. Is bowling something like new for you, or is that something you've been doing for a while as well? I've, it's certainly something that I've done a lot uh, over the years, but this last year, uh, I call our uh, I call our bowling team the Pin Pals. Apparently, the Simpsons already thought of that name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I've heard that on the Simpsons. <laughs> but yeah, we've certainly we've certainly leaned into it over the past year. A good, consistent group of people that have been going bowling together. And it's been so much fun and we can all support each other and joke around and, and just be awe in awe of how good of a bowler will is a lot of the time. And I think that that can, that can be a way, like even with all the lofty heavy things we've been talking about today, you know, from billionaires, because it certainly, it's not just an Edmonton issue. Billionaires are uh, historian. Robin Kelly calls them a parasitic class of people. Um, the parasitic class of billionaires and unfortunately, we have to include Taylor Swift in that even now. But yeah. it's a worldwide thing. But the the way we get through that is on the ground, in our communities, with the people we care about, wherever that is for whoever you are, and and just going bowling together and supporting each other and, and just doing things out of, I think I said before, kindness, care, and compersion. And so no matter what the parasitic class is doing, the, the everyday heroes we have in our community that are taking care of themselves and others, whether they're houseless or, or gainfully housed or whatever, just those relationships of reciprocity are, are what gets us through in the immediacy. I mean, there's, yeah, there's the idea of we can imagine a better future, but people every day are making that future happen together in their actions and their everyday practices. And I think that's so important to remember. Yeah, no, the beautiful sentiment, great. You know, one last thing to leave off on. I I couldn't agree more, and I I really appreciate you, I, like putting it that way, and you know, like tying it all together. And hopefully, you know, I can't say enough. I hope between like what you've shed light on and some of the stuff will talked about, I haven't really talked. I think you two are the first people I've started to talk about these type of things with and i'm really really interested to learn and and try to like do what i can to help out as well but i think you know as our listenership grows and uh i mean not to to brag but it is actually growing more than i ever thought it would so now i feel like okay this many people are listening maybe i should let you know, invite these people on to like talk because I don't really know anything about this stuff, right? I'm just 
I'm interested and I'm compassionate and I'm like motivated to do what I can when I know about it. But hearing all the numbers and all the like accuracies that you guys are able to talk about, that's what's really going to like push people, I think, to look into this more. So I'm really, really fortunate to be able to like kind of hear it straight from people like in the field working on this stuff, what can be done to to help combat all of this so i'm i'm really really fortunate to have you on here that was so much for me i don't know if fun is the word to use after all talking about all that stuff but it was really informative i learned a lot hopefully you got to vent about some stuff i'm sure you could do that forever as i could ask questions about all this forever too but um yeah i'm i'm also glad we got to leave that on a on a bowling note have you tie it all in just before we actually go do you want to let people know uh maybe where they could like find you on social media or if you have any like causes that you want to like promote and have people looking towards them for ideas of how they can help please uh stage is yours promote whatever you want well i think i'm easy to find on social media just by uh, looking at my name on on instagram i i've i've made a hard line i will never join tiktok that's my that's my line but i'm on instagram um just with my name rylan kafara as as for groups um have it reach out to me if you have any questions i know will has already mentioned a bunch of the mutual aid groups that are working in Edmonton. I I say that's a great place to start with 4B harm reduction hairs and, and all the others. And uh, that I, I've got a website citycenteredmonton.com. Uh, it's got uh, the lofts comic book, which is free to download. Listen to CJSR any chance you get. And I think most of all though, if uh, yeah, if I have any advice for people is just to have conversations with others, like Wesley, like you and I are doing right now. I think discourse has has become sort of a lost art for people in the social media age. Uh, there's not as much conversations between people that might not agree, uh, and that discourse I mean is like yes, talking, uh, but you're speaking and you're listening and you're thinking about each other what each other are saying and then it's like a it's like a learning tool or a method of learning is conversations with people is so important and so just yeah just have conversations with people wherever you are with an open frame of mind and just that that generosity and gentleness of of what can happen when when people are learning from each other and care about each other that's absolutely incredible thank you for uh i mean all that you do and then also thank you for allowing me to to be part of this conversation for the brief hour about all this stuff it really really incredible to learn and hear about all this stuff i i feel bad i barely even got to like broach the topic of your radio show but i'm I'm really interested in that as well. So I'm maybe going to pester 
you and Brittany and try to get you to put on a different hat and come on to an episode like all about the show and that type of stuff as well. If you guys would ever be into it. I I think would we, we would love that. And I think you'll find it'll intersect with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about already. So it'll be a good follow-up to this discussion. You you definitely seem to have a knack for like fusing everything together in a like natural way. Like some people I see try to like bring things together and it doesn't it seems like it's too forced. It's not like authentic, but you've like found a way to kind of associate all this stuff and it seems like totally natural and cohesive which again like i don't know if that's intentional or if that is just coincidence for you but it's it's incredible that it's worked out that way i would love to chat with you guys about that and then see exactly how it it does intersect because that's interesting to me as well awesome i'm so glad well Thank you, Wesley, for having me on and having this conversation with me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Enjoy uh, the rest of your weekend, whatever's left. And uh, I will see you or talk to you again soon, hopefully. Looking forward to it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.